Welcome to Content Pros Podcast, where we unlock the strategies and secrets of the best content marketers in the world and ask the questions you've always wanted asked. Content Pros is sponsored by predictive content analytics software, Inbound Writer. Now, here are your hosts from Oracle Marketing Cloud, Chris Moody, and from Uberflip, Randy Frisch. Ready? Let's talk to the pros. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Content Pros Podcast. We're really excited today. We're joined by Pat Spinner. Thanks, Chris. Pat, great to have you here. Uh, you know, I get excited every Content Pro we have joined the show, but this one's especially uh, intriguing for me because I, I don't think there's a day I go by at my office at Uberflip where I don't describe in some sense the idea of the challenger role. Uh, usually I'm probably talking about it from the sales angle, but you know, today we're going to have you hopefully educate those who are listening on you know, what the challenger sales model is all about, but also take us you know, to, to what we'll call the sequel being the challenger customer. So you know, maybe you can you know, tell us a little bit about you know, where you work, Pat, and, and how the, the challenger mindset came about. Sure, yeah, and thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, so I work at CEB where I uh, lead strategic initiatives in the marketing practice here. And uh, in the past, I've run the research program that serves heads of marketing and their teams that we call the Marketing Leadership Council. So I've been very much tied into all of the research that has gone into the whole challenger story as it has evolved um, these past five to six years. Um, the for, for your listeners who aren't uh, as familiar with the Challenger sale, this whole journey got started a, about five years ago when a couple of colleagues of mine here at CEB published a book called The Challenger Sale. That book was based on some very deep research looking at what is it that makes for successful sales reps in today's buying environment. And by today, play the tape back five years ago, right? This was the heart of the financial crisis and the recession and a lot of our clients were coming to us asking, well, man, it's really tough to be a sales rep out there today. You know, client customers don't want to buy much of anything, yet in our sales forces, we have a few folks who continue to beat their goal quarter over quarter. And what is it that separates their performance from the rest of the pack in this really tough recessionary kind of buying environment? And so we went out and as we do here at CEV, took a uh, a quantitative approach to studying that and uh, dove in to do very deep sales rep surveys to understand, well, what is it that separates the performance of, of the high performers from your average sales rep performers? And we found um, a pretty intriguing insight um, that is laid out in the Challenger Sale book. And the, the quick version of it is that um, uh, the whole sales world of sales reps and of naturally falls into five different sales rep profiles uh, from the relationship builder to the lone wolf to the challenger and so on. And what we found was that a particular kind of sales rep, one of those five profiles, um, outperforms the rest or is uh, more likely to be a high performer. And that is the challenger sales rep. This is a sales rep who is all about um, challenging customers and reframing the way that customers um, view their own business uh, in a way that leads uniquely back to that supplier. They, they exhibit behaviors that we call teach, tailor, take control. They teach the customer something new about the customer's business. They tailor the conversation. They take control of, of the purchase. 
Um, the losing profile, or the profile that was most likely to be an average performer, is one we call the relationship builder. And this is the rep profile that, ironically, sales forces have been um, structuring their sales coaching and training around for years and years and years, and that is the rep who is so customer-centered, I'm here for you, whatever you want, customer, you just tell me, I want to make that happen for you. Um, and we found that that profile is actually the, the, the worst performing of the five. And so yeah, that flipped a lot of conventional wisdom in the sales world on its head at the time and, um, and, and you know, led to a number of follow-on questions around, well, what are the implications for the broader commercial organization? How does marketing play into the challenger approach and so on and so forth? And that ultimately is what led us to the second book. I now, love that. I that gets us rolling, guys, but uh, that's sort of the challenger sale in a somewhat nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great place to start too because we've hit on things in various shows that are approaching that concept. We've talked a bit about voice of the customer and the importance of understanding your audience. And I think, you know, some of the big buzzwords that are out now, relevance, personalization, things like that. And, and it's really getting at delivering the right message at the right time to the right person, which is something we've been saying for 20 years. And apparently still not executing on, and I, I think your research would probably support that, but how are you addressing, you know, a customer that includes lots of different individual contacts and various stakeholders and some will different degrees of influence? How do you get content to those people? What is the strategy to approach the customer? Yeah, let me, let me unpack this a little bit, because um, from all of the research that went into the Challenger Customer book, um, we found that personalization, as commonly practiced today by marketers, could actually hurt your chances of getting a high-quality deal, ultimately. So let me unpack that. And I'll illustrate that with three numbers. So here's the three numbers, 57%, 5.4%, and 37%. So let me, let me tell the story here. So 57%... Uh, is how far the typical customer organization is through the purchase process before they are meaningfully engaging supplier sales reps, right? And the reason for that, of course, as we're all probably familiar with, um, is the information explosion and the ability for the customer to do a great deal of learning on their own before they feel like they have to start engaging supplier sales reps. Um, so 57% of the way through the purchase journey. That's going to be a really important number in just a moment. Now, 5.4 is the second number. This, from our research, is the average size of the B2B customer's buying group. Right? These are the number of stakeholders inside of that customer organization, on average, who are tied into making that purchase decision. Um, and what we see in our research is that, that the size of that group has been getting larger, and more importantly, it's been getting more diverse. It's like in the past, Maybe if you're um, uh, selling an IT solution, you might have just sold into the head of applications. Um, now you might have uh, a, someone in marketing tied in because you know, technology and applications are transforming the way that marketing is working. Oh, and you're going to have the, uh, a finance person tied in. Oh, and of course procurement. Oh, legal is going to have to be in there. Oh, the data privacy people are going to have to be in there. You have a, a very diverse set of folks that are in there. So 5.4 again, average size of the buying group. And what we find is that as you add more people, more diverse perspectives to that buying group, your likelihood of closing a deal declines dramatically. And we detail that in the book. Now, here's the kicker. The 37% number is the third figure. 
when you go out and do a whole bunch of deep B2B buyer research, so as we've done, we've gone out and surveyed thousands of B2B buyers to understand and unpack the way that they go through their buying process. What we found through this research is that when you ask them where across, how far through the journey or where in that purchase journey, do they have the greatest difficulty in bringing those 5.4 stakeholders together to agree on what's the nature of the problem we're dealing with here, what's the nature of the solution, what supplier should we go with, that that point, that greatest point of difficulty happens at 37% of the way through the buying process. So now when you stitch those numbers together, where that takes you is that um, if you're a marketer and you're viewing your job as, hey, listen, my job is to just get our sales reps in the door and the sales reps are going to be the guys who are going to stitch together the consensus in that 5.4 buying group that we need, that won't work because these there are deals out there dying on the vine and falling apart today before our sales reps are ever even in inside that client organization talking to the 5.4. So the upshot is we in marketing have to be doing a whole lot more and different uh, with our content uh, early on to help stitch that consensus together. Let me pause there and see if that's if that all hangs together. Yeah, that's I mean that's amazing. It's staggering. I th I think if you know when people take a, a step back and actually think about what that means. I mean in a way it you know Pat it really helps explain why we're hearing certain buzzwords today. I mean you know the 5.4 to me speaks to account based marketing. You know which is you know everywhere I turn these days we're hearing about that. But you know before we we maybe get to account based marketing because that's a whole other tangent. Um, you know, I want to I, I want to dig a little deeper on that 57% number. Yeah, and it, it's funny because you know one of my roles here at, at Uberflip is is to help our VP of Sales build out his team. Um, and one of the things we you know we ourselves sell to marketers, and one of the things I always tell anyone we're interviewing or any recruiter we're working with is this you know challenge that we have, which is that. You know, the problem is that the people we're selling to are marketers and they're really, really smart. I mean, like they know their stuff and it's not that they want to argue with you. It's not that they want to fight with you. They want to have a great conversation. Um, so if you can't rise to the conversation with them, you know, they're going to hang up or they're not going to reply to your email or whatever the case be. So maybe part of what you're saying in terms of um, you know, preparing content. It sounds like you need to do it for two different parties early on. You need to arm your sales team with the right content, um, but you also need to arm that customer for that 37% aspect, correct? Yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, just because on average customers aren't wanting to engage with us or aren't engaging with our sales reps until 57% of the way through the purchase doesn't mean that we as suppliers and marketing organizations and suppliers shouldn't be trying to equip our sales reps to be able to get into those conversations earlier. Because whenever we can get sales reps into meaningful conversations earlier, it gives us a better chance to influence how that deal evolves, how that customer lands on the buying criteria and the minimum thresholds they're looking for in those buying criteria. So that's important, right? Your second point is crucial. So through this research and the, the reason that the book got its name, The Challenger Customer, what we found when we uh, uh, dove into all of the quantitative work that we did is that inside of those customer organizations, inside of those 5.4 buying groups, 
we found that our, our data suggests that there are seven different profiles of stakeholder in there. And um, we unpack all those seven profiles in the book, but I'm going to boil it down to kind of, to kind of the, the synthesis of those seven profiles. So um, three of those profiles uh, we call uh, talkers. Um, these are folks who uh, tend to be pretty eager to engage with suppliers or with supplier sales reps. They're happy to dish the dirt about what's going on inside their company. In some cases, some of them might be about personal gain, and so they, they look at engaging with suppliers for um, ways that they can advance personally in their company, so on and so forth. But what's true of these talkers, these three profiles that are talkers, is they'll be very eager to engage with sales reps, and it'll feel really good for your sales reps to be talking to these folks because um, you know what we train our sales reps to do every time before they get off the phone with a customer is schedule the next meeting. You know what talkers are really willing to do with a sales rep? Schedule the next meeting. But you know what they're going to do at that next meeting? They're going to keep talking. And so you're going to, what we found when we dove into this is that you have sales reps, typically your average performing sales reps who love engaging with talkers. They predict, they forecast that that deal's coming in next Thursday and then the deal doesn't quite come in because that talker, it turns out, doesn't have the skill or the will to knit together the rest of that 5.4. So now, what we found in the research was, of those seven profiles, another three, three of those seven profiles fit under what we call the mobilizer profile. This is the challenger customer, the, the book title refers to. These, what unites these three profiles is these guys are hungry for ideas that can transform or change or improve their organization and they have the ability to drive consensus around a change path that supports that idea inside of their organization. And what's really interesting is that these guys, um, as we call them mobilizers, you, it's, you can't def, uh, find them by title, function, or role. Um, so they're not always the senior most decision maker or the head of a function or what have you. They could be anywhere inside the organization. They also are deeply supplier agnostic. They're less about um, hitching their wagon to a particular supplier and much more about the power of the idea and how that could affect the performance of their business. And so um, that governs how you need to go and, and try to engage these folks in the 57%, right? Who is it that you're targeting your content to? Who are you looking for? Who are you trying to engage? And how do you arm them or equip them then to be able to go and stitch together the consensus across that 5.4? By the way, that seventh profile, so if you've been doing your math as I've been talking, you've got six of the seven profile, uh, profiles. The seventh profile is one we call the blocker. This is a person who is all about preserving status quo. If, they're, you know, if you're a sales rep, you're in a conversation. Feed of our you existence. Talk to these folks as best you, can. <laughs> manage, you have to manage them, but you know, they're, they're not going to be the ones they hit your wagon to, clearly. So I'm sitting here as a marketer, and... You know, obviously we target marketers as well. Randy and I both share some of the same pains. And I feel like everything we talk about is top of the funnel or getting the form completion. And, and one thing that I've been talking about lately with some folks is how we struggle to create bottom of the funnel content. So when people are actually in the consideration phase, you know, what should we be providing there? which is very different than a form completion, but it sounds like with all of this research, there's another gap that no one is really talking about as publicly or as openly, and, and that's this 
process of finding the right people before they're you know halfway through the decision process and creating the right conversations and getting the right person within the organization and I'm just wondering I think the implications for a content team are clear but what are some things we should be doing as content marketers to help alleviate that problem and you know make a bigger percentage of people we're having these conversations with yeah absolutely uh, so here's a couple things uh, to think about so I mentioned before that I think personalization and the way that it's currently being done is actually harming the ability to land high quality deals so to to take that all the way to its conclusion. So if you've got these 5.4 stakeholders, and if um, the fashion around personalization would suggest to content marketers today, hey, you know what you have to do if you've got these 5.4 stakeholders? You need to go build a persona for each of those 5.4. And inside that persona, you're going to have, you know, what does this person care about? What's their psychographics, their usual background? What are their pain points? What are their objectives? And now with each of those personas, what you're going to do is you're going to create content that's geared to that particular persona and speaks to that persona's priorities and pain points and so on. Classic personalization, right? And the belief is that, okay, great, if I can get in with that persona and really speak to that individual, that gets me in. I can get the form filled out, right, and get, the, and get my sales rep in there, and we're off to the races. So here's where that actually harms you. So if you now think about that 37% figure, right, which is at 37% of the way through the purchase journey, that's when the 5.4 has its most difficult time coming together. If all you're doing is personalizing content to the individual stakeholders' pain points, you're not doing anything with your content to bring those 5.4 stakeholders together around a common rallying point. So what should you do differently? Um, we, we like to suggest that our members instead of create personas, create something or create a twist on that which we'll call interpersonal personas. Spend a whole lot less time going deep on what one of those individual stakeholders pain points are, objectives are in a vacuum and spend a whole lot more of your primary research time figuring out how does that individual stakeholder interact with the other 4.4 because that's what you really got to understand to be able to um, create content that's going to speak to a common rallying point for the 5.4 to come together in that early purchase uh, purchase process. In the worst cases, our data suggests that if you're, if you're doing the personalization the old way, again, you're actually driving those stakeholders apart. You might be cementing their current view of the world and making it harder for them to come around a common rallying point. So that's one big thing that what we see marketers need to do very differently right around persona creation don't do personas do interpersonal personas don't focus on creating a stronger connection between each of the 5.4 stakeholders and us as a supplier focus on creating stronger connections across the stakeholders between them so you can start to knit that consensus together okay so that's that's one key thing here's a second key thing that that we recommend to folks um, these mobilizers that I talked about before we think that, that marketers ought to be spending a lot more time going deep and understanding who these mobilizers are. One thing we've, we found from our research is that um, because this is more of a psychographic or behavioral type of profile, the mobilizer, it can be hard to identify them at arm's length as a marketer 
um, without having uh, you know some kind of interaction with them. If you're a sales rep on the ground talking to the person, it's easier to suss out if that person across the table from you is a mobilizer, a talker, or a blocker. If you're marketing, what we found is um, what you need is a dog whistle, so to speak, for mobilizers. You need to create content that that only mobilizers really appreciate. So if you go back to what we were talking about a moment ago in terms of what is it that mobilizers are all about. Remember, they're all about finding ideas that could transform the organization or dramatically boost the organization's performance. They have an ability then to stitch together the consensus around that change path. Um, mobilizers are, are really into uh, great ideas that change the way that they think about their organization. So you want to create content that can do that. And so now here's a trap associated with that. We see a lot of marketers um, investing in thought leadership. And they'll say, they'll, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we invest in thought leadership. That's all about putting ideas out there that, you know, customers can um, uh, engage with and, you know, uh, and, and, and try to run with. And that's going to win us trust and, and, and favor as a thought leader. What our research suggests is that, um, most thought leadership is too focused on uh, the technology or the idea itself and not with the current state of the customer's company and how that idea actually uh, transforms the current state of, of the, the customer's company. So um, at the end of the day, what we are all selling in B2B at some level is change, um, right? So don't buy from that supplier buy from us. Uh, uh, don't just buy the basic offering from us, buy this this larger offering, all right? And and involved with that is change. And if you step back and think about it, the one thing that customers these days tend not to want to buy is change, because change is hard. And um, uh, in particular, when you get that group of 5.4 together and they can't agree on very much, they're going to be really resistant to change. And so what we find is you've got to create content that gives an urgency to change. You've got to create content that makes the pain of same greater than the pain of change. And so we find that's a very special kind of content. It tends only to be a subset of the thought leadership that we see out there in nature. Uh, in the book, we unpack you know, how to go about building that special kind of content. But um, uh, there, there's a couple of hopefully practical nuggets in there for, for your content marketing audience out there. Uh, in terms of what should they do differently, does that all make sense? Absolutely. That's yeah. It's some great advice. I want to I want to dig more on on part of that in a second. I I also want to I think it's a good time just talking about figuring out you know the right tone, the right things to write for people, what's going to work. To to also introduce one of the sponsors of Content Pros here, who we're really grateful for, and that's Inbound Writer. And what they're going to help you do is actually provide a tool to help you predict what content's going to work, essentially forecasting before you spend the time to create that content based on a real-time analysis of your site, your competition, search engine behaviors. Inbound Writer will tell you which topics work, which ones won't, and removes all that guesswork that we're talking about. They're offering a free trial of the tool if you go to inboundwriter.com slash content pros offer. And we'll make sure that uh, that link's available in the show notes here as well. So you were talking before about linking together all of these, uh, you know, 5.4 decision makers in the process, and you know, I, I think that's great advice. I mean, you know, we often think about people as individual personas, to your point, as opposed to think about 
how they interact and how they make that decision better. You know, what are some actual examples that you can give people of, of you know, perhaps companies you've seen do this really well? Um, because I, I think a lot of people agree with the idea, but then it's kind of like, okay, how do I package all these assets for everyone to interact together or share with each other in a way that they're going to relate? Yeah, happy to share a couple of examples. So a couple that we include in the book that I really like. Um, one is from uh, Marketo, and many of your uh, audience may actually have, have referenced this particular content asset. It's the Definitive Guide to Marketing Automation. And if you unpack what's in that document, Marketo is essentially equipping their mobilizers with the toolkit that they need to go drive the consensus across the other 4.4. So the kinds of things you'll find in that toolkit are very um, nitty-gritty guidance on, all right, you're going to have to go talk to your head of IT, marketing mobilizer, um, if you're trying to make the case for marketing automation in your organization. And here's the kinds of objections you're going to get from your head of IT. Your head of IT is going to say things like, marketing automation, oh, we already have a CRM system. I don't know that we need a marketing automation system. And, and uh, as a mobilizer, a marketer who isn't, you know, let's face it, many marketers don't really speak IT, right? It's like uh, IT is from Mars, marketers from Venus type of thing, so talking past each other. Well, Marketo has done a really nice job in there of is equipping um, the marketer mobilizer with the specific language that they ought to be using to talk about, no, 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 hey, head of IT, Marketing automation is actually different from CRM in these specific ways. Here's what marketing automation enables us to do that our current CRM system would not allow us to do. So you're getting very much into the nitty-gritty into those conversations that your mobilizer is likely to have with the other 4.4, and you're arming them to go to battle to stitch that consensus together, likely before your sales rep is even in there, right? So you're starting to help them pave the way. Skillsoft has another... Uh, mobilizer toolkit, as we call them, that we really like. It's um, uh, I'll have to uh, I forget the name of it, but it, it it's basically a crash course to cloud-based learning systems, right? So Skillsoft does these um, online learning platforms, and it it, it uh, uh, is very similar in that it has all the tools that a mobilizer would need to go and convince the other 4.4 stakeholders. Here's uh, of the need for a change in the organization about the way that the organization, in this case, in Skillsoft's case, does employee development. Um, and so those are a couple of great examples I'd urge your audience um, and listeners to go check out. Uh, lots of lots of great um, uh, specific nuggets inside of those. So Pat, in the pre-show survey, you mentioned one of your frustration points was that much of what's discussed in marketing leads to quantity over quality. I I'd like to harp on that one a little and get some of your thoughts because I, I think similar to personalization there is the struggle to try to say hey we have these personas now maybe they're not the interpersonal personas which is something we need to go back and work on but we do have different audiences they have various stages of the funnel and you want to have the right content to help them progress which does mean you have to have a lot of content so I think many marketers feel overwhelmed that they have to create lots of content but it sounds like you have some specific thoughts on the quality of the content you produce. Yeah, I, I just think, it, you know, if I'm a marketer out there, and, and, you know, we have thousands of marketers in our membership here at CEB, and I'm talking with them a lot behind closed doors, you, you pick up on exactly that, this intense kind of 
feeling of being overwhelmed and, and somewhat frustrated because if you follow the the guidance from the collective blogosphere out there on content marketing, right? It's going to go something like, oh, you've got you've got these four or five personas that you've got to think about, and you've got um, let's be conservative, three or four channels that you have to think about creating content for, and oh, uh, you've got um, how many products and geographies that you have to have content for, right? For a mid or large size enterprise, four or five. That's conservative. When you do them, and oh, by the way, you have to be publishing regularly, right? If you don't have fresh content, you're going to be in trouble. So you got to be, you know, putting something out there conservatively, what, every month? I think some would say, oh, every week, I'll publish daily. As soon as you do the math on that, you get into this gigantic sort of Rubik's Cube of um, a huge number of content pieces that you are, at the end of the day, that marketers feel like, I have to do all of this. And uh, very quickly, but probably subtly, the quantity overtakes the quality, and you kind of get into the feed the beast mentality. And so, really painful. Um, and, and in my mind, a fool's errand uh, to, to try to keep up with that. So, if, if from all the research we've done underpinning this book, if I were going and starting a marketing organization afresh, and we're thinking about our content strategy, here's what I'm doing. I'm figuring out for my products who is the mobilizer persona that we need to be targeting. It's like forget about all of the other personas who are involved in the buying group for a minute. Let me just start with who is the mobilizer persona. And in the book, we actually um, reference an example from Smart Technologies. Jeff Lowe, who's the CMO at Smart Technologies, actually did this. They're in the collaboration technology space. They went and profiled the psychographic of their mobilizers, and then. I'm going to know that mobilizer inside and out. I'm going to get create content just for them along the lines of what I was talking about before. Not thought leadership, but something that we call commercial insight. Having attracted them with my with the great ideas that are going to um, enable them to change their organization, I now want to have those mobilizer toolkits like from Marketo or Skillsoft that I can equip those mobilizers with. If I can find and equip mobilizers to go in and start to stitch that consensus together, I think that's a huge part of the battle and is much more powerful than having just the right little nugget of content for stakeholder number three and eh, it's probably not going to be a very high quality piece of content, oh, it probably won't be fresh, oh, it may not be quite right for their geography. It's just too many elements of the Rubik's Cube to try to get right. So I'm really going to focus on that mobilizer and equipping that mobilizer to go do battle and I'm, I'm not going to prioritize the other personas. Um, not for right now. I think, I, think, I think most marketers can achieve a whole lot more than they are now if they take the energy they're putting into all those personas times all those products times all those channels and put it really on the mobilizer, understanding the journey the mobilizer goes through and helping that mobilizer stitch together the consensus in their organization across that journey. This, this is awesome stuff, Pat. Uh, you know, uh, we're we're running short on time, so what I'm going to ask you to do, if you can, if you can do for everyone who's listening, is let us know where we can get the Challenger customer book or or more content around this, and then you know wrap up with with an awesome question we always ask people is help us understand how you got to this point of where you are uh, by taking us way back to what you wanted to be as a kid, and and it may have had nothing to do with this, but but we often find these stories amazing. Uh, Okay, so where can you get the book? Uh, in all your local bookstores plus Amazon, of course. Um, you, if you wanted to get access to some of the ideas, 
I might suggest just going to the Challenger customer website. You'll find all kinds of um, uh, uh, little nuggets on there that relate to the book and can, can get folks a little bit deeper into some of the concepts. Um, there's one particular piece I might recommend, which is uh, uh, an executive guidance piece from CEB that we published um, uh, a couple months ago that essentially is, is a short synopsis of some of the key ideas in the book. You'll find that on that Challenger customer website. And so um, for those of you who want to kind of get exposure to, to some of the ideas in the book, that's a, that's a good starter kit, I suppose. Um, so uh, what did I, uh, what did I want to be when I was young? I don't know what I knew exactly. I knew what I didn't want to be. So uh, as a child, I survived a rear ending in a Ford Pinto. Uh, remember the, the quirk that those cars had? They tended to blow up in rear end collisions. And so, um, and so ours didn't blow up happily. Uh, uh, we didn't have a full gas tank. So what I, I knew I did not want to be was a crash test dummy. So there you have it. That's a very good thing to know. You always want to know what you don't want to be. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, Pat, thank you so much for your time today. I know that this was a very research-heavy episode, but there are a lot of things I'm taking back to our team from this, and hopefully we can make some improvements to some of the work we're doing as a content organization. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. This has been another episode of the Content Pros Podcast. You can follow more at contentprospodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you like to get your favorite podcasts. Please give us a review if you have two minutes to do so, and we will talk to you guys next week. On behalf of Oracle Marketing Cloud, I'm Chris Moody, and Randy Frisch from Uberflip is the other amazing co-host. So thank you all. Talk to you next week. Thanks for tuning in to Content Pros. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentprospodcast.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. Content Pros is sponsored by Oracle Marketing Cloud, Uberflip, and Inbound Rider, and is produced by Convince and Convert Media. Find more great shows like Content Pros at marketingpodcast.com, the first search engine for marketing podcasts. Podcast Imaging by Audio Bag.